Good morning. Uh, it's great to uh, be preaching again this morning. If we haven't met, my name's uh, Nick Russell. I'm a congregation member here. I'm also the chaplain down the street at uh, Christchurch Grammar School. Let's pray before we begin. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you love us and you sent Christ into the world for us. We thank you for uh, your word in the Bible. We pray that you help us to hear you this morning, that we would grow in our love of Christ. Amen. I think about a year ago in a prep school chapel service I was running, I, uh, I asked for a student volunteer to come up and to solve the Rubik's Cube. Um, you know that little box with um, coloured squares on it where you have to uh, get each of the sides um, uh, looking facing the same colour. Uh, Theo, I'll get you to change the slide. Thanks, my clicker might might not be working 100%. There's a picture of the uh, the Rubik's Cube. And the student came up and, uh, and uh, suddenly started spinning the sides at lightning speed, like was barely even looking at it. Just... And I've never seen anything like it. You know, under about a minute, he was completely done, from mixed up like the one you saw on the screen to completely perfect. Um, I was a bit stunned by this because I clearly remember as a boy in late primary school spending hours and hours trying to solve the Rubik's Cube. And I never could. There was always one or two squares wrong. I'd had friends who'd get to that stage and they'd peel off the stickers and switch them over. Um, and I completely get it because you were so close and yet so far. Uh, and uh, I don't know if I knew anyone back then who could, could actually solve the Rubik, Rubik's Cube. Uh, I've since, though, learned that you don't figure out the Rubik's Cube. It's a formula that you've got to learn from somebody. And YouTube has plenty of instructional videos on it. So this boy I had up had, uh, had memorised the formula. The Rubik's Cube is a fairly superficial example of something that I found difficult to complete. Uh, I, there's been many similar stories in my life of things that are difficult to complete. Uh, my dad tried to teach me to surf once. He uh, bought me a surfboard for Christmas, took me out every weekend. That was one skill I could never master. Uh, no, it's the, back to the normal slide, Theo. We'll come to that one later on. Thanks. Um, yeah, talking about beaches. Uh, uh, surfing was definitely a uh, skill I could never master. In fact, it was a skill I could never really even novice. Um, but to move out of the realm of the superficial, there are plenty of things in our lives that, that are difficult to succeed at, aren't there? Um, I just think of parenting. You know, anyone who's a parent or has witnessed parents at work knows that it's a constant test of self-control and wisdom, social and emotional intelligence, values, integrity, and not a day goes by where you don't mess it up. Uh, most of us have in our memories quite clear examples of things that we, we probably regret, things we've failed at. Life is just full of moments of failure, and in a sense, you know, that's, that's okay. Our worth comes from the God who loves us. It's, it's okay to fail. It's okay to find things difficult. But there's one thing that I'm thinking about this morning that that, that I find difficult every day, uh, almost every day, and that's living and speaking the good news of Jesus. It's hard. I mean, I'm I'm committed to the story of Christ, to the story of his death and resurrection. I hope and long for the coming of the kingdom of God. I want people to know about this. I'm in a job that enables me to do it, but it's still hard. I was speaking to a friend the other day who was telling me about his grandfather, who for most of his career was a school chaplain like I am, and this friend that said for his grandfather, this move when he was younger to become a priest and a chaplain was something of a move upwards in the social ladder. 
you know, it gained him quite a bit of social respect and honour in his community. We laughed about this because it's rather the opposite now. You know, I tell people I'm a priest and a chaplain and it usually results in a change of subjects. Um, now I know you've, you've probably felt this as well, that, that uh, you know, if you're a, person of, a Christian person here and you've raised your faith, you've probably felt a sense that, that you're a bit strange you know, of course, we want everyone to know how beautiful the story of Christ is, but there's always a kind of mood of, of, of shadow over that. Now, what we face in some way like Perth is, is very superficial compared to what the ancient church faced or what our brothers and sisters in many parts of the world face. Uh, we don't face serious persecution for our faith and ministry here really at all. Uh, I, I can't really even call what we face persecution. It, it's not quite that, but... It is opposition at times. And we all, I'm sure, have felt opposition at some point with living or speaking our faith. I remember once someone saying to me, if you want to make a church feel guilty really quickly, you just need to speak about one of two things or both. Speak about their prayer life and speak about evangelism, them sharing the gospel, prayer and and sharing the gospel. Well, today's story, you'll be thankful to know, is a prayer all about Evangelism, all about sharing the gospel. Um, now, don't worry, because what we actually find in the story is, is a great encouragement. The story is not designed to raise your guilt at all. It's designed to empower us and encourage us in our life in the world and in the power and the love of God. What happens in the story is that um, Peter and John, uh, two apostles that we, uh, we, we read about last week, returned from being held by Jewish religious leaders for speaking about Christ. Uh, they return to the church community and, and they relay to them what happened. And then the church community's response is to immediately turn to God in prayer. Now, I'll go through the detail of the prayer in a, in a few moments. But one of the things I find really encouraging about it is that at the heart of the prayer is a request for boldness. Uh, it's there in verse 29, which, again, we'll look at later. Why did they need to pray that they would speak with boldness, speak with courage? It was because this early Christian community, led by the apostles, were just like us. They needed to pray for boldness because they didn't have boldness. I I personally wouldn't pray for a wife. I already have a wife. You You pray for what you don't have. They prayed for boldness because they didn't have it. They were afraid. They were weak. They needed God to work because they couldn't. So if you feel a bit strange at times, if you feel a bit powerless, a bit useless in sharing the, the stories of Jesus, then you are in the company of the apostles. And so they prayed to the sovereign God. That's, that's how their prayer begins in verse four, no, 24. They say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them. They'd just been arrested they were threatened with more arrest. Uh, physical violence was, was coming. Economic consequences likely. Social shame guaranteed. And so they remember that God is the powerful one. It's not people. God has made all things and, and rules even now. That, that's why they pray, because they know that if God made all things in heaven and earth and the sea, then he can certainly answer their prayers. He is powerful. He, he rules no matter what happens. I think that's a, that's a fantastic reminder for us that it's not too hard for God to answer our prayers. Making the sky, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them, 
seems a much bigger task, and he accomplished that with his word. So to answer our prayers, God is powerful to do it. More than capable. I was walking through the school the other day, and uh, one of the catering staff was wheeling this uh, trolley full of boxes and food along the path. And as I walked past, one of the wheels fell off the trolley, and the boxes and trays started to slide off, and he was sort of juggling them and trying to hold them. Uh, he couldn't stabilise them while, while he was fixing the wheel, so he was in a real bind. He couldn't even stop the trolley without things um, sliding off. So I asked him if he wanted help, and he, he said yes, and I lifted the trolley up for him while he grabbed the wheel and, and put it back on. It was about the time of day, though, when some of our youngest kids were being dropped off, you know, the little four- and five-year-olds with their oversized school bags, bags that are bigger than they are, and uh, he, did, he didn't ask one of them for help because it would be a really difficult job for them. Easy for me, easy for an adult, hard for a child. We pray to the sovereign God who made the heaven, the sea, and everything in them. So be encouraged. Answering our little prayers is not difficult for him. The community continues in this prayer, and it really begins in a strange way. Uh, They take us back to the beginning of the book of Psalms in verses 25 and 26 here in Acts, uh, to Psalm 2, which is our first reading. It's really one of the most significant psalms in the whole book of Psalms, thematically. And what it's all about is the nations of the world raging against the anointed one, raging against uh, God's ruler. And, And there in Psalm 2, you have the people of the world opposed to this anointed one, which is... The Hebrew word for that is, is the Messiah. And the Lord sort of laughs at them. We see God sovereign despite the opposition. You have God empowering the Messiah to rule the earth and a, a call for the nations to fear him. They, they cite this psalm and they interpret it um, with the story of Jesus. Herod, Pontius Pilate, they say, with the Romans, the leaders of the Jewish community, they're like the nations opposed to the Messiah, to Jesus. And we've got to start, stop and ask, well, Why are they talking about Jesus? It doesn't actually seem directly related because his opposition, his persecution was months before this. It's done and dusted. The opposition that they've immediately just faced, the apostles, the early Christians, that's about them. It's not about Jesus. But they see the opposition Jesus faced as the same kind of opposition that they face. And they see such a strong and powerful connection here that we could say that they see that the church is united to Christ, is in Christ, and carries on his ministry. His ministry continues to face opposition through his people. And that should, I think, be a great comfort for us in our lives, whether or not we've felt any opposition, to know that we are connected to Christ himself as a community in a deep and spiritual way, that he is there with us and for us and in us. There's a uh, beautiful song by the Australian folk singer Paul Kelly called Deeper Water. And the song begins like this. On a crowded beach in a distant time, at the height of summer, see a boy of five. At the water's edge, so nimble and free, jumping over the ripples, looking out to sea. It's a beautiful image of this young boy playing by the water's edge, you know, longing to go deeper but afraid to go deeper. And and then uh, in the next verse we read, Now a man comes up amongst the throng, takes the young boy's hand, and his hand is strong. And the child feels safe, yet the child feels brave, 
as he's carried in those arms up and over the waves. Deeper water, deeper water, deeper water calling him on. And the father lifts the boy and takes him to where he couldn't go in his arms, takes him over and through the waves to the deeper water. And, and the song is actually a bit of a story, which is what really makes it so beautiful. He, he, um, the boy grows up and falls in love and, and they fall pregnant and they have a child. And as time goes on, the mother gets sick and, and she dies. Um, and, and then in the final verse, we hear these words, On a distant beach, lonely and wild, at a later time, see a man and a child. And the man takes the child up into his arms, takes her over the breakers to where the water is calm. Things come full circle, and now the man who was once the child takes his daughter over the waves, waves to the deeper waters, to the calmer waters. The deeper waters kind of being significant and symbolic of how we move through the difficulties and sufferings of life. It's a beautiful truth, though, I think, that the church is united to Christ, that we might be there jumping around the edges of the water, but Christ himself picks us up in his arms and and carries us through the breakers, over the breakers, to the deeper water. That image, I think, is something of what it means to be united to Christ and to be like him. It's something of why this early Christian community began their prayer with the story of Christ. He's the Messiah of Psalm 2, the ruler of the whole cosmos. He's the one that the nations ought to fear, and he's with us. We're in his arms. He's carrying us over the breakers to the calmer waters of life and resurrection. And this applies especially, I think, to our life in the world, to how to live and speak the good news of Jesus. Um, And notice the the beautiful contrast in the heart of the prayer there. Verse 29, I'm going to read from. It says, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Uh, You'll see two forms of speaking there. You have their threats. They're the words that they've received from the priests and the elders, threats. And what do they respond with? A a different form of speaking. They respond with speaking the word. Now, we've got to be careful. It's not as simple to say that the word um, simply equals Bible here, that they didn't have what we call the New Testament when the book was was written. I don't think they meant the Old Testament. Really, they meant the gospel, what the Old Testament and the New Testament speak about in the end. It's the good news that God has come in Christ, has died for us and risen again. That was the word. That was the announcement of God's good news. They would respond to threats with speaking, the announcement of God's love for people, God's love for the world, and uh, expect God to, uh, to bring good works um, through the, the witness of the church. So in response to the threats, they don't threaten back. You're going to receive God's judgment for this, or this is unlawful, I'm reporting you, how dare you arrest us. Uh, they don't even argue. You know, don't you know there's a historical and philosophical, philosophical evidence for the resurrection? They're simply asking that they would have power to speak the word. They repay threats with an announcement of good news, with a declaration of God's love for them through Jesus. And I think this is a great moment to to reflect on what our calling really is as Christians. I've heard plenty of rather 
aggressive argumentation from Christians. I've certainly done it at points. I've heard plenty on social media trying to win the argument. That's not speaking the word as such. I've engaged with whole schools of thought on, on apologetics, how to prove the resurrection, how the Bible's reliable, philosophical arguments for the existence of God. These are all great and, and very useful. I actually think they're probably most useful for Christians, not unbelievers. And they do have their place in a conversation at times. There's no denying that. But really at the heart of what we're called to do is, is to speak the word, to speak the gospel. And, and what is that gospel? We could say it's simply the what we know as the Gospels. It's the beautiful story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That story is powerful and it's deeply powerful. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never met a Christian um, who came to faith because they were threatened by another Christian. <laughs> um, I've never even met someone, I'm sure they're around, but I've never really met someone who came to faith because they were convinced by a philosophical argument for God's existence. But I think I've met hundreds who have come to faith because their hearts were struck with the story of God's love through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're called to speak that word of God's love. And they pray for boldness to do this, courage, the the kind of courage a five-year-old would have Uh, Not to go over the waves themselves, but when their father lifts them over the breakers. That's what they beg for, courage to speak his love to the world. How often do we pray for boldness? We pray for lots of things, better prayer life itself, finances, relationships, Christian missions. But what about boldness for our own life and witness? I don't think it means that we all need to be uh, preachers or, you know, uh, courageous door-knocking evangelists uh, or awkwardly have to change the subject all the time in our friendships. You know, someone says, how good was that Swans win over the Dockers last night? And you're like, well, the real winner in my life is Jesus. You know, <laughs> Don't do that, please. Um, God is at work among us. And it almost always happens through strong relationships and friendships where God opens doors and conversations begin. I think boldness is being willing to walk through that door when God opens it. I consider myself something of a terrible evangelist. Um, I find trying to change someone's mind just really uncomfortable, which is not really part of my personality. Uh, I don't like that kind of conflict. Uh, we often had to do door knocking on uh, missions at the- Theological College when I was training, and I-, I would try to get my way out of doing it every time. I'd be like, okay, what dishes are there to wash? You know, anything. Um, I had several friends, though, who are the evangelist type. They love going door knocking. They, they basically turn a conversation with an Uber Eats driver at their door into a conversation about Jesus. You know, God bless them, and that's not me in the slightest. I get the sense it's probably not most of us. But God's, God's a brilliant evangelist. God's brilliant at sharing the stories of Christ. Um, many of you will have heard that there was a number of people who were baptised at Christ Church last term, and all these people were surprised to me. Uh, so many of them came forward, and when I asked why they wanted to be baptised, said things like, oh, you, know, you spoke about hope two years ago at Christmas and it stuck in my head, or uh, I'm realising there's something deeper in life. 
for the stories about Jesus really gripped me. I think of other friends of ours who you know, took 10 years of friendship and, and God's working in their hearts clearly. And we didn't spin every conversation or tackle them with apologetics. We kind of just lived as Christians. God opened doors, and then he sort of pushed us through them. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine has been struggling with doubt for years. He's, he's still a Christian, but really wrestled with a number of issues in his faith. And he told me a few months ago that someone at work you know, said to him, how can you believe the Bible written so long ago? How can you believe in these miracles? How can you believe in a God that allows people to suffer? And, and on it went, and he just said, yeah, you know what, I, I struggle with lots of those things as well. I don't really have any good answers to them. But I just can't get past how beautiful Jesus is. I love that, don't you? You know, <laughs> see, how much, see, how, see how powerful that is? That, that is something I, think what, uh, something I think of what speaking the word means. The apostles prayed for boldness to speak the word in response to their threats. They prayed that God would open doors and that they would walk through them. And God responds powerfully in the story. The house they're in shakes like an earthquake. It's a supernatural sign that God's responded powerfully, that God is with them. God is acting by his spirit in the church. It says that they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're filled for speaking the word of God with boldness. It's as if the arrest and the threats only resulted in an even more powerful and effective and spirit-filled ministry. I remember once as a kid, I was on a um, scout camp, and we just finished cooking. And um, the way scouts were set up, they, they kind of um, gave you more and more responsibility. We, we were just a group of boys. We'd cooked our own dinner, um, and we had a pan full of butter and oil. We didn't really know where to put it. We need to pour it out somewhere, and someone said, I'll oh, just chuck it on the fire. We need to put the fire out anyway. Um, now, we at primary school boys, we didn't realise that butter and oil is not like water. It's highly flammable. It doesn't put fires out. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's a good suggestion. I'll pour it on the fire. And so I did. I poured it on the fire, and whoosh, flames went sky high. You know, leaders, adults came running from all around. What on earth are you trying to do? And I was like, oh, sorry, I was just trying to put the fire out the wrong thing. And that seems to be the kind of theme in the book of Acts, that for every threat, for every persecution, for every killing, for every opposition, the church's ministry grows, like trying to put a fire out with oil and butter. It's unstoppable. It grows bigger because God is at work until right at the end of Acts, um, the gospel goes to Rome, the heart of the empire, through the arrest of Paul and his appeal to the emperor. So even Paul's arrest and coming death advances the cause of God's good news. We might feel weak, we might feel tired, we might feel useless at times when living and speaking our faith, especially in a kind of shadow of opposition. But God is telling us this morning that his word is unstoppable, his church will grow in weakness, his church will grow through even the small and the insignificant things like us. You want to make a church feel guilty quickly and speak about prayer and evangelism. I hope that this morning this prayer for boldness has not made you feel guilt, but wonderful excitement at the power of God at work in our community and world. Because Christ is with us, he's calling us to deeper water, and we are in him. Christ is here filling us with his spirit that we too might speak the word with boldness, even in a mood of opposition. The story is a call for us to pray for boldness and to expect God to be at work in our community with his unstoppable gospel 
the good news of the love of God through the story of Christ. That is not our ministry. This is not our community. These are not our ideas or theology or mission. This is the mission of Christ continued through us without depending on us. And God, in his grace, will complete it. Amen.